Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly fix of all things royal, brought to you from Mail Plus. I'm Jess King, standing in for Joe Elvin this week, and here's what we have coming up on today's show. How revelations from a new book are causing a stir in royal circles. Plus, will we be bailing out the palace? We take a closer look at the Queen's finances after the publication of the Sovereign Grant Report. And we bring you details of a new investigatory podcast that's looking into the death of Princess Diana and trying to uncover more about what happened that night in Paris in 1997. Now, we start the week with a fresh round of royal revelations and allegations and the ongoing fallout from the Duke and Duchess of Sussex's decision to leave the royal family. A number of new stories appear to have come from the updated edition of Robert Lacey's book, Battle of Brothers. More on that in just a moment. But for now, let's bring in royal writer Victoria Murphy to bring us up to speed. Victoria, thank you for being with us today. Now, we already knew Archie wasn't going to be a prince. So why is this story coming up again? What's new? There have been stories recently that suggest that Prince Charles does plan to change things when he becomes king and that he would limit titles in line with having a slimmed-down monarchy. But Robert Lacey in his book, which does seem to be very well sourced, doesn't seem to think this is likely. He seems to think that it won't be a priority for Charles when he becomes king and therefore things will be left as they are, which means that when he becomes king, Archie and Lily will be able to use those prince and princess princess titles if they want to. One of the things that has perhaps been confused is that this issue of having a slimmed down monarchy has been conflated with this issue of titles. And in some ways they are linked because obviously it's the working royals who most who use the titles and who are working members of the royal family. However, Actually, you can have a slimmed down monarchy in terms of numbers of working royals without changing anything to do with the titles. Princess Beatrice and Princess Eugenie, for example, have royal titles, but they're not working royals. The two things don't have to be connected. So suggestions that Prince Charles wants a slimmed down monarchy don't automatically have to go hand in hand with him changing anything to do with titles. And at the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral, there was quite a bit said about what went on between William and Harry. Well, apparently not much. It turns out that that may have been intentional. Um, Yeah, this is interesting because, of course, around the time of the funeral, we all saw um, William and Harry and Kate walking together for that brief period when they left St George's Chapel. And then there was multiple, multiple reports that were not contradicted as far as I'm aware, that there had been a long conversation between Charles and Harry and William following the funeral. Um, But in the updated version of his new book, Robert Lacey um, seems to provide a different narrative to that. Now, it's important to say that his book does seem to be very well sourced. Um, He seems to have spoken to people that he didn't speak to um, for the first edition of the book to shed new light on historical events and also to um, shed light on some of the events that have happened since the book's publication. Obviously, the funeral is one of those things. And he seems to have spoken to a friend of William as as one of these um, new sources. And what he says is that William and Kate did not speak at length to Harry after the funeral. And and the reason was that there were concerns over whether or not those conversations would find their way into the public domain. And obviously, this follows 
the Sussexes having been very vocal over the last year, um, speaking in interviews um, about conversations that have been held behind closed doors, decisions that have been made behind closed doors, and also some of their high-profile friends and acquaintances also talking about this publicly as well. So it does make sense, but it's interesting because it provides a very different narrative to the one that was very, very widely reported following the funeral. And of course, we spoke about this recently, the speculation about whether the name Lilibet was protected by the Sussexes before they had that conversation with the Queen. Now it seems it was. Well, the domain names of Lilibet Diana and Lily Diana were purchased by the couple just before or around the time that their daughter was born. And they've confirmed this. And it does seem that this happened before they spoke to the Queen about their daughter's name, because they've also said um, in separate statements by their spokesperson that that conversation took place after their daughter was born and the Queen was one of the first people that Harry called. Um, now, the Sussexes, you know, have been quite open about this and a spokesperson has said that they did purchase a number of domains of potential names, emphasising there was a multiple domains, it seems, purchased. And the reason that they did this was to protect against the name that was eventually chosen being exploited by others. It obviously does make sense because once the name is announced, any domain name with that name can potentially become very lucrative and clearly they didn't want those domain names to be owned by other people. Um, so it is interesting, but it actually doesn't really, I think, change the emphasis when it comes to the Queen's approval or not of the name. Clearly, had she vocalised an objection, they would have been able to choose something else and just not used those domain names with those names. But I think it will be interesting to see if they actually use the domain names in the future or if they just keep hold of them to stop other people from using them. So I think that's one of the things that we'll sort of see pan out over the next few years, if there is actually a plan for these domain names now or if it is simply to prevent other people from exploiting the use of them. Well, thank you very much, Victoria. Always a pleasure having you on. Now, I'm joined in studio to discuss all of that and much, much more, of course. We have with us Daily Mail's diary editor, Richard Eden, and, of course, broadcaster and historian, Dr Tessa Dunlop. Thank you both very much uh, for being with us today. Um, Richard, you were the one who said on Palace Confidential a fortnight ago uh, about the trademark issue. Now it's been revealed that the name Lilibet Diana was protected by the Sussexes way before that chat with the Queen. What do you make of all this? Um, well, it's, it's not quite a trademark yet, but it is the domain names that they're, um, you know, they've bought up and they're trying to protect. And let's be clear what, what's happened here. I mean, this is extraordinary. You know, that they were threatening legal action against the BBC. Um, all the newspapers we received these threatening letters, um, you know, after the BBC made the accusation or they reported that the Queen um, had not been consulted before they'd chosen the name Lilibet. And now we've learnt that they've registered all these, um, you know, the domains um, before then, which, which really shows that, you know, that they'd made the decision. I mean, it's all very well to talk about how we registered others, but come on. I mean, they've already made a commercial decision to register these names, and then they've just spoken to the Queen about it. They haven't asked her if, if they can use it. Come on. Tessa, does it matter? leapt off the fence there and um, sprung very much uh, to the side of those who immediately suspect the worst of the Sussexes. And I agree some of their actions 
are not always easy to cast in the best light. However, as Victoria just pointed out, you, you know, have a prospective set of names. A lot of people, when they're going to have a baby, choose a long list. It's normally a, a big point of domestic, you know, conflict, which name you're going to go for. You name all the baby's teddy bears, the ones that didn't get away. Um, so I don't think it's un, wholly unreasonable to suggest that uh, they wanted to call their daughter Lilibet Diana. So they protected that domain name, as Victoria said, not necessarily for commercial reasons. And then once they had the Queen's blessing or they'd floated it in front of the Queen, they then officially decided that was going to be the name for their daughter. But I don't think you can assume it was commercial for the get-go and that actually they had made the decision before they spoke to the Queen. I think that is surmise and not like you, Richard. Well, if there is evidence that they registered other domain names about other names they were considering, then that will be publicly available as well. I'm not saying there isn't, but I, I haven't seen that yet, so I've, I've got an open mind about that. But certainly, um, they obviously had a plan when they spoke to the Queen, and it, it does seem to be more they were telling her of their intentions rather than asking her. And it was interesting that they, they rode back on their initial statement and they conceded, I can't remember the exact form of words, but it was that basically she hadn't raised any objections, which is quite different from, from asking her, I'd say. Mm. And Tessa, moving on to their first son, Archie. Uh, the grandchild of a sovereign can claim the title of prince, but not so with Archie. Now, this seems like a bit of a provocative move on the part of Prince Charles. Tell us more about this. I think Prince Charles has probably been clumsy. I mean, he reminds me slightly, Prince Charles, of the, the well-meaning, avuncular <coughs> sort of man in the corner who's a bit out of date and occasionally gaffes and gets things wrong. In his little head, it would be simpler to have fewer princes and princesses. Prince Charles, I think, who, I think, well-intentioned man, he walked Meghan Markle down the aisle, for goodness sake. I think he was ready and keen to welcome her into the family. But he didn't really, he, he failed to recognise the wider implications of having a woman of colour in the contemporary royal family and what that meant for the potential reach, potential diversity, the, the, the voice in the Commonwealth, and he dropped the ball. He should have done the exact opposite, which was, hey, Meghan, I wanted to slim down the monarchy, but instead I'm so going to make your Archie the biggest and best prince on the planet, oh, except he's never going to be king. That's what he should have done. No, I think more and more people have been saying to me that it was, it was evident all the, the time that Harry and Meghan didn't want to make it work, and particularly Meghan. So it, it wasn't sort of Charles's fault for not making a welcome. It was that she very much didn't want to make it work. She wanted to go back to California and pursue her, her career. With and the her, prince. Yeah, exactly. Richard, William, too worried about leaks to talk to the press, allegedly. Um, surely then this latest issue surrounding a private phone call with the Queen won't help matters. Well, I'm sure they're all very worried about any um, so-called private phone calls or communications with um, Harry and Meghan. We all, you know, we know how much has come out about those private conversations. And I think if I was William, I wouldn't want to say anything other than talk about the weather or how your children or, you know, just small talk, really. I think anything else would have to be face to face in the knowledge that it's likely to be reported by Gail King or you know, Omid Scobie or one of their other cheerleaders. But, but when they had the face-to-face -face opportunity after the funeral and they clearly didn't capitalise on it, I think, you know, the greatest problem in all of this is that William, with his perfect wife, Kate, you know, and their perfect three children have all been given these um, royal titles. You know, it's a kind of game set and match, isn't it, for the, for the Cambridges? And what it looked like to Harry and Meghan was, oh, where's the space for us? Where's the space? Actually... 
misunderstanding or not understanding, that is the ruthless machine called monarchy. Dating back to Battle of Hastings and beyond, if you're firstborn and ideally male, you will get it all, mate. And the rest of you, <laughs> on your bike and remember to behave. You know, and actually, that's a hard message for a contemporary feminist like our Megan. Well, uh, family <laughs> troubles and on top of that, money troubles, they really are just a normal family, aren't they? This week, the Sovereign Grant Report was released showing how the royals have been spending our hard-earned cash. Royal finance expert David McClure has all the details. The royal household has been hit more severely than was first expected by COVID. The palace have basically has had to tighten its belt and impose a recruitment freeze. And there's a, they've also drawn down as much as £1.6 million from their reserves. But I don't think you should feel too sorry for them, because you should remember that in the last decade, the sovereign grant has gone up by as much as £20 million. So it has been a period of growth, growth. And now the palace admits that those growth days are ending and we're probably moving into a period of leavening off, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Last year, the palace said categorically that they wouldn't accept state help to bail them out financially. And they repeated it this year by saying, we know we'll continue as we've been doing and sort it out on our own. But interestingly, at the end of the year, the prime minister, the chancellor and the queen's treasurer will all sit down to review the level of the sovereign grant. Currently, it is 25% of the profits of the Crown Estate, but they could raise it to 30%. Now, the problem with that is that it might not be politically acceptable because everyone else has been hit financially by COVID and it wouldn't be look good if the palace were getting a special treatment. But at the same time, it must be very tempting because it's a quick fix to a very complicated problem. Travel is normally the most controversial item in the sovereign grant accounts but less so this year because due to COVID, they spent £2 million less. But that still didn't stop Prince Charles from spending £59,000 on one away day to Kuwait for a royal funeral. And then he spent over £40,000 on a trip to Germany. Rail travel was also expensive, and, there was, and William and Kate on one single rail journey to Scotland spent £49,000. Interestingly, it was the only time the Royal Train was used this year, and last year it was only used three times. So it's not really financially viable, and in the future its days must be numbered. The sovereign grant does not include all the costs of the monarchy. It doesn't include, say, the costs of local councils for organising visits by members of the royal family. And most importantly, it doesn't include the cost of security. Now, the government refuses to say give it precise any figure whatsoever for the cost of security because they say it might undermine security. But I've just completed an investigation that showed that 10 years ago, the cost of security was £128 million. And if that was the case 10 years ago, it's probably something of the region of £150 million today. So the monarchy is really a lot more expensive than the palace would have us believe. The most interesting thing to come out of the sovereign grant was a revelation that Prince Charles paid a substantial sum to Harry to pay for his security. Now, what's interesting about that is, of course, that Harry, in the interview with Oprah Winfrey, said that his family had cut him off financially. We now know that Charles paid for his security up until last summer when Harry, you know, again, signed all those lucrative commercial contracts and was able to, to buy a very expensive house. 
For the first time ever, the accounts show the composition of ethnic minorities among staff at the palace, and it doesn't make for good reading. Although overall in the country, ethnic minorities make up 13% of the population, at Buckingham Palace, it's only 8.5%, and at Clarence House, 8%. Now, the palace accepts that they should do more, and next year they set a target of 10%. The overriding theme of the report this year is the effect of COVID. Now, the palace is probably over the worst of the storm, but some rough waters still lie ahead. Now, Tessa, of course, the palace, like many businesses, have been hit hard by COVID. Uh, the Queen last September pledged not to accept any state handouts. Do you think she can keep that promise? I think she's going to have to try. It's a real conundrum because, of course, what's hers and her family's is also ours. They are our palaces. They belong to the nation. Doesn't feel like, like it. She but... does. <laughs> um, uh, so, and of course, we uh, mutually are her subjects. So it's this wonderful symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. I think before she gets more money, the sovereign grant, of course, is geared to always give her a little bit more each year. She's a winner in the equation as it stands at the moment. Of course, they're not, they haven't had the numbers through the gates and so they're gonna, not going to have the turnover. But she could always recoup that by giving us greater ass access to her main assets, which are the palaces. At the moment, there's such a narrow window when you can visit Buckingham Palace. And I think, you know, the terms of when she's in residence or not, likewise, her more private homes like Balmoral and Sandringham. But we'd love to have a bit more of a nosy. We could go on a day out together, Richard, take a, a picnic. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, bring uh, a bodyguard, perhaps. God, he's never looked so <laughs> reticent. <laughs> we mentioned the Royal Train there that's only been used a few times in the past year. I mean, surely that can be laid to rest now. What can we do with that? No, I think it would be um, they should be making more use of it, really. I mean, you know, in, in this age, they're trying to be more environmental, cut down on car journeys and plane trips. So it would make sense to make more use of it. I think the problem at the moment is it costs so much because it's used so rarely that it still has to be maintained and everything. But if, if they could use it more often, it could be more effective. I mean, you've got to be careful about cutting these things. You know, there should be a bit mm. of grandeur to the... The, the monarchy. And remember, you know, it was a terrible mistake, in my opinion, to decommission Royal Yacht Britannia. You know, they wanted to save a bit of money and do that. But, but it, it was a great selling point for the country. And it was a, it was a wonderful way for the royal family to arrive on, on foreign trips. I think you've got to be a bit wary of sort of giving in to the populist knee-jerk, you know, we need pomp, we need something to put a flag on. But now let's extend that uh, metaphor. We're going up to Balmoral together. Perhaps they could let the train be rented out when it's not in use, Richard. Do you think Mail Plus would find the budget we could <laughs> arrive? I mean, you know, I think these assets are sitting there. And if it's only used three times a year, that's criminal, really. I, I think these football VIPs that are coming over, perhaps they could rent it out and have their COVID quarantine. And I mean, I do think the rest of us, we do... Um, B&B, Airbnb and so forth and rent out our cars. Why not the royal family? Actually, it's also the public's and we should be allowed access to it. Well, on that note, just wanted to take a quick pause to say that if you are enjoying the programme and you've got this far, hopefully you are, uh, you might be interested in more royal coverage from Mail Plus. One of the best ways to do that is to sign up to our weekly royal newsletter from our very own Richard Eden, packed full of news, insight and gossip. It is just like our Richard, a royal fan's dream. <laughs> Head to www.mailplus.co.uk forward slash palace hyphen newsletter and the link is on screen now. 
Now, next week, the Princess Diana statue will be unveiled to mark what would have been her 60th birthday. Nearly 25 years on from her untimely death, mystery still surrounds the car crash that claimed her life in a tunnel in Paris. As part of a new six-part Beyond Reasonable Doubt podcast from Mel Plus, crime writer Stephen Wright has been investigating what happened that night by speaking to the people who were there. Here he is to tell us more. Starting point was my idea to have uh, a podcast episode for my true crime podcast for Mail Plus on what happened at Scotland Yard the night Diana died in uh, August 97. I knew one of the officers who was on call that night, Di Davis, uh, no stranger to uh, Palace Confidential. Uh, he told me many times over the years you know, about what happened, been woken up out of night, uh, middle of the night rather, going into the Royalty Protection Squad offices to oversee the Met's response to her death. I asked Lord Stevens, the ex-Met Commissioner, whether he would be prepared to do an extended interview about his investigation into Diana's death, Operation Paget. I was aware that Lord Stevens had interviewed Prince Charles in 2005 when he had recently retired as head of the Metropolitan Police. Um, then uh, he interviewed him, but we, I didn't know what really he had put to him in that interview. It made a few hundred words in a Sunday paper, um, but no one could get to the bottom of it. And it transpires that, and he revealed it in the podcast and in the paper, that he interviewed um, Prince Charles about a letter, a note that uh, Princess Diana, Diana Princess of Wales, had left in her pantry for her, her um, butler, Paul Burrell, in 95, predicting her own death in a car crash orchestrated by Prince Charles. Sounds really far-fetched for, for that to happen, but of course, when she died two years later in a car crash, uh, you know, conspiracy theorists, when they became aware of that, you know, it was a field day for them. Uh, and Lord Stevens uh, said he had to read out that note that uh, the princess had written to Prince Charles. He had to follow the evidence during his investigation. Look, there were, there were you know, theories that MI6 was involved, the Duke of Edinburgh was involved, the security services in the States were involved, they were eavesdropping on the princess, that she was pregnant, that she was embalmed to uh, hide her pregnancy. I mean, the list was endless. I mean, if this was true, I mean, it's the biggest conspiracy uh, ever. And of course, this conspiracy happened in one of the great cities in the world, uh, not in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it, it was, when you look back at it now, quite farcical, really. Um, but there are people out there who still want to believe uh, that something is far more sinister than a, a simple car crash uh, involving a man who had drunk too much Henri Paul, speeding, collided with a white Fiat Uno, whose driver we've tracked down as part of his investigation. Um, that something so simple, yet so horrific, could cost her her life. Um, Richard, nearly 25 years on, this awful tragedy, it still holds such a lot of intrigue and fascination for so many people. Why do you think that is? It really does. I mean, there's been so much interest in this um, reports by um, Stephen Wright and Richard Pendlebury th throughout the week and they've been absolutely fascinating and people are still so intrigued and, and more so and I think programmes such as The Crown have given have just a whole new generation has become interested in, in the story of Diana and because through her sons and through the royal family 
um, that relations continued and, and we see so much um, influence of her life in so many different areas. You know, she was ahead of her time in, in so many ways. And so I think it, it makes next week's unveiling, you know, a really big worldwide event and it's going to be fascinating to follow. It Absolutely. is an extraordinary example of living history, isn't it? And actually, it's what, you know, for all our chat and, 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 and surmise about the royals, you have to take your hat off to each and every one of them because they are in this gilded, gilded cage, but they're also so exposed. And Diana's untimely death, and actually a death we still don't fully understand, um, is an example of... of how precious they are, you know, really, and how vulnerable they are. All of us pouring and picking over them. And likewise, next week, I think all of us need to check ourselves. And remember, these are two boys who lost their mother at an extraordinarily young age in a very public way, who now are going through their own domestic crisis. And it, it's like the pain shifted, but it's not, it's not gone. All eyes will be on the unveiling of that statue next week. We can't wait to see it, of course. Uh, that is all we have time for today. My thanks to Victoria Murphy, Richard Eden, Dr Tessa Dunlop, David McClure and Stephen Wright. And thank you for watching. Joe Elvin will be back next week. Until then, bye-bye.